A note before we begin, this episode contains discussions of nuclear violence and alcohol abuse. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. Science can feel polarizing these days. Experts in their field citing data and research are accused of having political agendas, especially when it comes to climate change. It can be disheartening, frustrating. But the truth is, at one point in time, decades ago, during the Cold War, the narrative around Earth's climate crisis had everything to do with politics. Governments around the world swept the existential threats our planet faced under rugs and peddled propaganda, claiming there was nothing to worry about. This forced many scientists and researchers to decide between honesty and getting their work funded. And one of those scientists really struggled to make a choice. For years, he traveled between his home country, the USSR, and the United States. Until one day, he disappeared halfway between the two. And neither government seemed to care. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet a Soviet scientist who developed a theory about climate change to try to combat the creation of nuclear weapons. He rose to international fame during the 80s, but after he disappeared, he became a footnote in Soviet history. His name is Vladimir Alexandrov. It's 1978, the height of the Cold War. The United States and the Soviet Union are bitter rivals, and the threat of nuclear war is constant. Scientists in the USSR try to focus less on politics and more on gaining new knowledge. Leading the charge is Vladimir Alexandrov, one of the Soviet Union's most accomplished scholars. At the country's Academy of Sciences, the 40-year-old mathematician and computer expert has been working on building a computer model of the Earth's climate. His research wins over the Academy's vice president, a man who works closely with the Kremlin, aka the Soviet government. And this likely gives Vladimir the support he needs to do something few Soviet scientists have been able to do before. Travel internationally. At this time, even the most prominent USSR researchers are essentially forbidden from leaving the country, especially if their destination was the United States. So Vladimir having the reign to go wherever he wants is incredibly rare. I don't know exactly why he has this privilege. In an article in the magazine Science Digest, Andrew C. Revkin and Karen Polk speculate it's because Vladimir has close ties to the KGB, the Soviet equivalent of the FBI but there's no proof of that. There's also another potential factor. Vladimir is tall, handsome, and charismatic. He's a gregarious man who loves giving gifts and bear hugs. Perhaps Soviet officials think he's just a good representative of their nation. But it's important to note, Vladimir doesn't consider himself a spokesperson for any government. He's interested in his research and objectivity. He uses his long leash to attend scientific conferences around the globe. He meets numerous colleagues with advanced understandings of the Earth's climate, 
many of whom are American, but he is yet to actually visit the states. U.S. scientists are further ahead in their climate research than most at this time, likely because they have access to some of the best technology in the world. Technology that could, Vladimir believes, take his work to the next level. So he asked for permission to visit the Soviet Union's Cold War foe. And the Kremlin grants his request. In May of 1978, Vladimir flies across the Iron Curtain to the United States. He travels to Oregon State University and spends two weeks studying a computer model of the planet's atmosphere. From there, he heads to the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado, and studies with some of the most talented climate scientists in the world from over 50 universities. And he gets to use the world's most powerful supercomputer, the Cray-1A. You have to remember, this is before laptops and cell phones. Regular PCs don't even exist. Most computers are large, stationary, and require a lot of electricity to operate. The Cray-1A is no exception. It's worth an estimated $8.86 million and weighs 5.5 tons. Standing at 6 feet 5 inches tall, it's shaped like a giant circle with an opening for a human to enter. The Cray-1A fascinates Vladimir. It's the fastest computer he's ever used. He's able to run atmospheric models in only six minutes, while the same simulation takes 48 hours on Moscow's quickest computer. It's a game changer, and Vladimir is practically glued to the device for as long as he's in the States. But according to journalist Andrew Revkin, U.S. government agencies like the FBI, CIA, and Defense Department don't really trust him at this point. Everyone who knows and works with Vladimir swears he's only there to conduct climate research, but they're not convinced. After all, letting a Soviet scientist use the nation's most powerful computer could be an enormous security risk. They're worried he might be using the Cray-1A for nefarious purposes, like code-breaking or designing a bomb. Luckily for everyone, Vladimir proves that he's just a climatologist. With the help of the Cray-1A, he creates one of the most advanced atmospheric models in history. And in doing so, he cements himself as a trustworthy member of the international scientific community. For the next two years, he continues traveling the world, occasionally stopping home in Moscow. Then in 1980, Vladimir returns to the US and visits some colleagues studying at universities in Oregon and California. And during the trip, he starts to embrace the trappings of American culture. Hamburgers, barbecue, department stores, anything he can't find in the Soviet Union. Before he flies back home, Vladimir's wife, Alia, joins him in the States. She somehow gets permission to spend a few weeks in America. I don't know how. Like I said, it was rare for the USSR to allow scientists to travel, let alone their spouses. But Vladimir and Alia make the best of the opportunity. They map out a road trip across the Southwest, hoping to acquaint themselves with as much of the American landscape as possible. Their plan includes a visit to the Grand Canyon and ends at NCAR in Boulder, Colorado. Vladimir even gets an Oregon driver's license and buys a used car just for the occasion. They're excited, but the trip never gets off the ground because the night before they leave, the US government steps in. Seriously. The State Department bans Vladimir and Alia from taking the vacation, presumably because they still see him as a potential security risk. So Vlad and his wife never get to go on their classic American road trip. They fly back to the USSR. Now, I have to imagine the lack of trust is disheartening. 
but Vladimir doesn't seem to get too discouraged. He maintains his ties with American scientists and forms new bonds as well. Throughout the early 80s, he visits the States, stays with friends, even meets some of their families. When Vladimir returns to the USSR, the US State Department allows for a few of his American friends to visit him in Moscow. They stay in his apartment, and Vladimir introduces them to his wife and their teenage daughter. At one point, a University of Oregon professor named Larry Gates attends a dinner party at Vladimir's Moscow apartment, filled with Vladimir's Soviet co-workers. According to Larry, the gathering's a blast. He describes it as, quote, a lot of food, toast, stories, and jokes. There may be a language barrier, but both sides do their best to laugh off any mistakes. Against the backdrop of the Cold War, the compassion and grace they share feels touching. Despite everything, Soviets and Americans can find common ground. But the Alexandrov's party has a bittersweet lining. Vladimir's wife is ill. Alia is suffering from debilitating headaches that come on at night. It's eventually determined that she has severe liver damage. From what, I don't know, but it's serious. Healthcare in the Soviet Union is hard to come by. And for those who can access it, the standard of care isn't very high. So Vlad turns to doctors in the US and UK to see if they can help his wife. He tries almost everything. He smuggles medication into Moscow. He even brings tissue samples of his wife's liver to a doctor in England. Suddenly, traveling is a necessity for Vladimir. His wife's health depends on it, which means he has to stay in the Kremlin's good graces by proving his worth as a scientist. And in 1983, he makes major progress. That April, Vladimir attends a closed-door meeting at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in Massachusetts. Only a hundred scientists are allowed in. Researchers discuss how a nuclear war could destroy the Earth's atmosphere permanently. They believe the smoke and dust from a blast could block out the sun and destroy the ozone layer. As a result, the Earth would sink into darkness and ultraviolet radiation would kill every living creature and all plant life. Temperatures would likely drop to 13 degrees below zero, and the world as they knew it would cease to exist. They've called the theory nuclear winter. After attending the meeting, Vladimir makes nuclear winter his primary focus for research. He uses the Cray-1A to create an advanced atmospheric model that proves the theory true beyond a doubt. This breakthrough catapults him to fame in the USSR, fame that's well-deserved. Vladimir's always pursued his research from a place of honesty and good faith. But the downside is, the Kremlin sees Vlad's work as something exploitable. They want to make him a mouthpiece, a means to their political ends. His research on nuclear winter theory seems like a great way to discourage the US from creating more nuclear arms. As for Vladimir, it seems like he just wants peace between the US and the Soviet Union. He loves Americans and their culture, but he's stuck in a precarious position. His funding primarily comes from the Soviet government, and it's contingent on the quality of his work, or rather, how favorably they view his work. Now, Vladimir could theoretically get himself into a slightly better position. He can secure basically unlimited funding if he gets a doctorate degree. But programs are highly competitive. So to prove himself, he needs to keep producing new and original research, which he can't do without funding. It's this catch-22. He's backed into a corner, and with a sick wife at home, he doesn't have much of a choice. 
he agrees to become a passionate spokesperson for Nuclear Winter, traveling the globe to educate others. And a few months in, a world-famous American scientist endorses the theory. On October 30th, 1983, Parade Magazine publishes Carl Sagan's article on Nuclear Winter. In it, Sagan claims nuclear winter is the biggest threat currently facing life on Earth. About 100 researchers around the world dissect his theory and agree. Suddenly, the theory starts making headlines everywhere. And as the Soviet's foremost expert, Vladimir is thrust into the spotlight. He starts rubbing elbows with Washington politicians, advising Senator Ted Kennedy and other members of Congress on the climate crisis. And by January 1984, Pope John Paul II invites Vladimir, Carl Sagan, and 15 other scientists to the Vatican to deliver a report on nuclear winter theory. Vlad's old American colleagues watch as he becomes an international celebrity in his field. They're happy for him, but they're also concerned because they know something the public doesn't. Nuclear winter theory is wrong. Hi listeners, it's Richard. Before we get started, some bittersweet news about our show. Today's episode will be the last for Dictators. When we started in January of 2020, we never could have imagined the outpouring of support we would receive. It's because of you, our incredible fans, that we were able to examine such intriguing figures over the years. From robber barons and tyrannical popes to world conquerors and Hitler's henchmen, we traveled through time to explore their reigns and ruins, and we can't thank you enough for coming along for the ride. A special thank you is owed to my wonderful co-host Kate, our team of dedicated researchers, writers, and producers, and countless others who work tirelessly to bring you these fantastic episodes each week. So for everyone here at Dictators and Parcast, Thank you for listening. In 1984, American researchers find out Vladimir Alexandrov and Carl Sagan are wrong about nuclear winter. It's not the biggest threat to life on Earth. Rather than a winter, nuclear detonations are more likely to create a nuclear autumn. That's an actual term people now use to describe the possible fallout of atomic warfare. According to reporting done by journalist Alex Ward with Vox, in a nuclear autumn, temperatures will likely cool for about a decade, the world's food supply will drop by 40%, and 2 billion people will be at risk of starvation. Nearly a quarter of the world's population. Which is all to say, nuclear autumn is terrible but it's less severe than what was proposed by nuclear winter theory. When this comes to light, the revelation has the potential to ruin Vladimir's status in the USSR. He's at the center of the Soviet's anti-nuclear propaganda campaign. If it fails, his home country might revoke his freedom to travel, which means he'd never see his American friends or the Cray-1A supercomputer again. Without it, he won't be able to maintain his advanced atmospheric model and he'll likely fail to receive his doctorate. He'll lose research funding and won't be able to travel internationally for pleasure or for his wife's health. Vladimir has two choices, admit he was wrong or keep up the ruse. With so much at stake, he chooses the second option. 
he spends the rest of his year traveling to scientific conferences around the globe, passionately spreading propaganda. In private, Vlad's American colleagues urge him to walk back his position. As one of its faces, they want him to announce that nuclear winter is at best a fringe conspiracy theory. The public deserves the truth, and they're more likely to believe it from him. But as Vladimir's deadlines for his doctoral research approaches, Alia's illness gets worse. Before he can cut ties with the work that made him famous, he needs another scientific breakthrough, and fast. In January 1985, Vladimir travels to the US, presumably hoping to use one of their supercomputers to begin a new study. But the trip hits a snag right away. The State Department bans him from using their technology. They say it's a temporary security measure, but it's a major blow to his research. Vladimir seems to take it in stride. He jokes with his fellow scientists that he can access the computer anytime he wants, basically suggesting the US government can't stop him. A month later, rumors circulate about someone trying to log into an American supercomputer from Moscow. Naturally, the State Department thinks it's Vladimir. Andrew Revkin, along with fellow journalist Karen Polk, later speculate that this is the last straw for the American government, and Vlad gets banned from ever entering the United States again. That's never been confirmed, but the US does make a very public statement against Vladimir. On March 1st, 1985, the Department of Defense discredits his work in a report that reads, quote, it's hard to tell the difference between Soviet scientific workers and propagandists. The widely publicized study by Soviet researchers V. Alexandrov and G. Stensikov is based on a borrowed, obsolete US model. Time after time, their presentations contain exaggerated claims, which are criticized by their foreign colleagues. Though in private, the Soviets acknowledge the exaggeration. Afterward, it likely becomes clear to the Kremlin that the propaganda campaign they pushed onto Vladimir has failed. And without the Soviet government on his side, Vladimir's career and finances take a turn for the worse. There isn't much he can do about it. So he just keeps up appearances and continues presenting nuclear winter theory at conferences around the world. Which brings me to March 29, 1985. It's the day Vladimir flies to Madrid, Spain. The plan is simple. He'll meet his driver, Jose Moreno, inside the airport. Jose will drive him 250 miles south to Cordoba for an international conference, and Vladimir will deliver yet another presentation about the already debunked nuclear winter. But a major wrench gets thrown into those plans. At the airport, Soviet officials approach Jose and tell him they're taking Vladimir to the embassy. They whisk Vladimir away to no one knows where, but Jose follows in his car behind them. What happens once they get inside the embassy is anyone's guess. But half an hour later, Vladimir exits the building, gets in Jose's car, and asks to be taken to a bar in the vicinity. Any bar. So Jose does. 10 minutes later, Vladimir stumbles out of the bar, wasted. He's so drunk that he just passes out in the back seat of Jose's car. While he's in this alcohol-ridden stupor, Jose drives him to Cordoba, where Vlad's staying at a local university. They get there five hours later, around 7 p.m. Jose passes Vladimir off to a conference official named Margarita Ruiz Schrader. Margarita shows Vlad to his room, thinking he'll want to get some rest before his presentation the next morning, but he clearly doesn't sleep. Spanish police later find him passed out on the street, before once again bringing him back to the college. 
Now, Vlad's friends and colleagues think this is way out of character for him. He drinks socially, but they've never known him to get this drunk, especially the night before a major conference. The next day, Vladimir shows up for his presentation, and instead of the passionate, charismatic scientist everyone's used to, they get a seemingly irritated man who delivers a short, bland speech. During the Q&A, Vladimir only offers tense and evasive answers. Later on, Margarita tries to ask him what's wrong, but he doesn't respond. He reportedly spends the rest of the day and night drinking in or around Cordoba. Around 3 a.m., while Margarita and the conference organizers are working on drafting policy resolutions, they see Vladimir pull up in a cab. He's so disoriented that he tries to pay the driver with US dollars. Margarita pays the bill for him with local currency, but she's put off by the whole situation, enough that she and city officials report Vladimir's behavior to the Soviet embassy. The next morning, March 31st, Vladimir is supposed to travel back to Madrid, but Margarita is worried he'll cause more trouble on the way there. So she arranges for a second driver, a man named Francisco Delgado, to go with Vladimir and Jose on the 250-mile trek. While on the road, Vladimir pesters both drivers to stop at every cafe or restaurant he sees. Francisco and Jose refuse. Five hours later, the car reaches Madrid, Vladimir looks out the window, expecting to see the airport. Instead, he realizes he's heading toward the Soviet embassy. Vladimir panics. The USSR severely punishes citizens who misbehave abroad, and his drunken antics definitely qualify as misconduct. He probably fears the embassy will revoke his travel privileges, or worse. The details about what happens next are fuzzy. Andrew C. Revkin notes that Margarita, the primary source of this information, changes her story several times. But here are the basic facts. As the car drives toward the Soviet embassy, Vladimir tries to open one of its locked doors so forcefully that he damages it. When the vehicle reaches the embassy, Vladimir tries to escape. Soviet officials catch up to him. And eventually, an embassy employee takes Vladimir to Hotel Havana, a popular destination for Soviet tourists. He settles into the room with his luggage, then goes out around 11 p.m. He gets drunk again. He returns later in the night, still intoxicated. He goes to the hotel bar and asks for some Spanish wine. The attendants believe he's had enough and escort him off the premises. Then, Vladimir stumbles away and it's the last time anyone sees him. On the morning of April 1st, 1985, Soviet embassy officials descend on Madrid's Hotel Havana. They're looking for Vladimir Alexandrov. They go into his room. He's not there, but his luggage is still inside. They keep digging around and eventually find his passport in a trash can. The Soviet authorities quietly take Vladimir's bags, pay his bill at the front desk, and leave. Later in the day, the USSR embassy asks the Spanish police to look into Vladimir's disappearance, unofficially. It's not entirely clear what this means, but based on the research we've done, it seems like the embassy doesn't officially report Vladimir missing. There are no search parties, and no one alerts the press. The police just keep an eye out for him, I guess. It's obviously an inadequate approach, but even though Soviet officials appear to be keeping the story under wraps, it somehow manages to spread all the way across the globe. 
two days later, April 3rd, the United States gets involved. Two FBI agents visit one of Vladimir's friends, fellow scientist Bob Chess. Agents grill him for 30 minutes about where Vladimir is, asking if he defected to the United States. They're wondering if Vlad purposely fled his home country. Back in Moscow, Vladimir's wife, Alia, is considering the same thing. On May 3rd, she calls John Wallace, a University of Washington professor whose wife speaks Russian and can translate for her. Alia relays her concern about Vladimir's whereabouts, saying she has no idea where he is or what happened to him. Over the next few months, news of Vladimir's disappearance circulates among American scientists. According to Spain's El Pace newspaper, at least five scientists who worked with Vladimir said he wouldn't have defected to the United States. He's just too devoted to his wife and daughter to abandon them. But there are many others who suspect he did defect. They know how much he loves American culture and working with the Cray-1A supercomputer. They also recall how his nuclear winter theory began to fall out of Soviet favor, meaning he might not have been in good standing with the USSR government. If Vladimir secretly departed for the United States, they wanna give him the best chance at survival. They hope he's in a safe house in a Western country and he'll materialize again when the time is right. So these American scientists make a pact. They're not going to tell anyone about Vladimir's disappearance. Usually not filing a missing persons report is extremely harmful to a case. I can't say if this is the right move here but Vladimir's friends seem to have good intentions. If the USSR catches him defecting, he'll likely receive at least two to four years of prison time. But months go by without any word from Vladimir. The American, Soviet, and Spanish governments are all eerily quiet about his disappearance. In June, Vladimir's supposed to attend a workshop in the UK with a group of researchers, including St. Joseph's College scholar, Dr. Thomas Malone, but he never shows. According to Thomas, a Soviet colleague explains that Vladimir, quote, disappeared in Spain under circumstances that they did not understand. The colleague said the USSR referred the situation to the International Red Cross. But aside from this anecdote, the Soviet government and state-run press don't even publicly acknowledge Vladimir is missing. Vladimir's friends begin to regret their pact of silence. They wonder, what if he didn't safely defect after all? What if he's actually in danger? So finally, they start talking. On July 4th, three months after Vladimir's disappearance, journalist Vera Rich publishes a short article in the British science journal, Nature. The piece details Vladimir's disappearance using unnamed sources. Some though, she mentions, are American scientists. Vera entertains the possibility that Vladimir tried to defect, but was caught and killed by Soviet authorities. Although she admits that these theories might be far-fetched, the story still gets picked up by major publications around the world, including Spain's El País newspaper and the New York Times. It's enough publicity to force action from the USSR, and on July 17th, the Soviet embassy formally asked the Spanish police and foreign ministry to search for Vladimir. They do, but they don't find any sign of him. Then on August 1st, another Soviet disappearance makes news. And this person is even more prominent than Vladimir. He's an esteemed KGB colonel named Vitaly Yurchenko. He goes missing in Rome, Italy and becomes the second high profile USSR disappearance and suspected defection of 1985. 
Naturally, the public and press wonder if Vladimir and Vitaly's cases are somehow connected. Weeks pass with no sign of either man. But then, in November 1985, six months after Vladimir's disappearance, Vitaly suddenly shows up in Moscow. The USSR holds a press conference for his return. Vitaly claims the CIA kidnapped him in Rome and flew him to Washington, D.C. Agents apparently drugged and threatened him. They wanted the colonel to defect from the USSR, but Vitaly refused. At some point, he managed to place a call to the Soviet embassy and was rescued. But according to Vitaly's account, he wasn't alone in Washington, D.C. The CIA had also kidnapped Vladimir. They were keeping the scientists there as well. After Vitaly's press conference, Soviet officials publicly acknowledged Vladimir's disappearance for the first time, four months after he went missing. But Vitaly's story is then refuted by US federal agencies. According to the FBI and the CIA, they didn't kidnap Vitaly at all. He came to them, wanting to defect from the USSR. They even made a deal, ensuring his financial stability and anonymity in the US. But a Soviet mole working inside US intelligence apparently leaked Vitaly's betrayal. So to take charge of the narrative, Vitaly changed course. He called the Soviet embassy and invented that story about how the CIA kidnapped him against his will and tried to force him to defect. When faced with both stories, the USSR buys Vitaly's account, hook, line, and sinker. And why wouldn't they? They're choosing between the claims of one of their own, a high-ranking military official, and their enemy's government. As for who's actually telling the truth, the CIA reportedly have tapes from their interviews with Vitaly, supporting their account. But in any us-first-them scenario, humans are hardwired to prefer the narrative coming from their side, no matter the facts, no matter how ill-conceived the logic, we can be irrationally loyal. And those in power can weaponize that fact to foster two starkly different realities, allowing truth and what's actually important to fall through the divide. By the end of 1985, Vladimir's disappearance has been used to bolster misinformation about Vitaly's return, but the USSR seems to have no interest in finding him, which is devastating news for Vladimir's wife and kids. Out of desperation, Vlad's family reaches out to someone they think can help on the other side of the world. In February 1986, Vladimir's wife and mother write a letter to US Senator Ted Kennedy. They ask him for help finding Vladimir, saying, quote, everything that happened to him is unexplainable and unforgivable. According to CIA archives, Ted receives the letter and contacts the USSR Academy of Sciences and the Soviet Embassy several times. He asks if Vladimir is alive, but no one responds. A year later, in June 1987, Ted writes a letter to CIA Director William Webster. He asks if US intelligence agencies have any information on the disappearance. He wants to be able to give Vladimir's family some sort of answer. About two weeks later, William replies, saying the FBI and CIA don't have any records on Vladimir Alexandrov. It's a little strange, given the US State Department's history of keeping tabs on the Soviet scientist. But by 1991, the Soviet government collapses, the Cold War ends, and Vladimir's disappearance remains a mystery. Reporters keep his story alive, though. They interview friends and family, who speculate on what they think happened. 
Some believe he died in a random act of violence. Others hope he's somewhere on a beach in Greece or living underground in Europe. But to this day, no one knows the truth, except that Vladimir was a victim of the Cold War. He was a respected scientist turned reluctant propagandist who was used as a political tool and disappeared after his work was no longer considered useful. As many have pointed out, Vladimir's strange drunken behavior began right after his meeting at the Soviet embassy in Madrid, but no one knows what was said behind closed doors. All we know is, his country didn't acknowledge his disappearance until months after it happened, when a military official accused the CIA of kidnapping him. Personally though, it's hard not to see a connection between Vladimir's disappearance and his work on climate change even if only because they've both become shrouded in misinformation and buried by propaganda. So I want to end this episode with two facts that are unquestionably true. First, Vladimir made an enormous impact on his field and all of our lives. He wasn't right about everything, sure, but his research remains integral to our understanding of atmospheric science. Nearly 40 years after his disappearance, the computer simulations he made with the Cray-1A computer still produce accurate readings about the ongoing effects of climate change. An incredible feat considering how much technology has evolved since. And second, Vladimir Alexandrov was both loving and loved. He crossed oceans and borders to access medicine for his wife, to charm others and share meals with friends to see the world with clear eyes and a warm heart, one that's free from perceived binaries. At a time where it felt impossible, he found a way to bridge what seemed to be an impossibly large divide. And that's something worth remembering. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. Among the many sources we used for this episode, we found Andrew C. Revkin and Karen Polk's Science Digest article, A Cold War Climate Mystery Endures, The Vanishing of Vladimir Alexandrov, incredibly helpful. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Disappearances is a Spotify original from ParCast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Brawrow. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Trent Williamson as our senior production specialist. Allie Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Disappearances was written by Mallory Cara, edited by Karis Allen and Connor Sampson, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Mickey Taylor, produced by Aaron Larson, and sound designed by Alex Button. I'm your host, Sarah Turney. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.